right. Welcome to Ideology. This is a fun week, Drew, talking about uh, eschatology and specifically the book of Revelation. I'm excited. I am too. We've uh, we've built it up for a couple weeks now, and um, I didn't know if you were going to ask. I did shave into a mustache, but it's a muted... Yeah, I was going to ask, and actually it's not a mustache. It's, like, well, If a mustache so... is defined as a thin strip of hair above the upper lip that does not go below... This That's is fair. actually very clearly a beard with a goatee element. Well, the mustache is at an eight, and the beard is at a four and a two. So I'm I'm kind of half stepping into <laughs> into the the realm of the mustache. So so you're trying to ease your family I'm, into it. Is I'm that what easing, it is? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's like and it's gateway. been a good reception so far. So uh, what's next? Is it like what's going from next an eight is, to a one? No, it... leaving the mustache at an eight, but taking the beard down to a one and a two. Okay, so it should pop a little bit more. And then what's after that? Uh, we'll see. We'll see. That remains to be seen. But uh, we are talking about the book of Revelation today. We are not dressed as the rider on the pale horse, um, let alone the Grim Reaper, which we've talked about, uh, which has no direct reference to the book of Revelation at all. We did but. talk, though, about the lively tradition of Christian 90s screamo bands yes. that drew from Revelation for inspiration as the most metal book of the New Testament, like hands down, I would say. Absolutely, 100%. And I, I was trying to, there was a, a song that I distinctly remember, and I cannot find it for the life of me. So I'll, I'll keep digging and see if we can kind of drop in a clip in some future episode. Um, but we uh, talked about eschatology for a couple weeks, looking at some general frameworks. Then last week looked at Matthew 24 and 25. Pardon me, today we're going to look at the book of Revelation. There's other apocalyptic literature, but I think the goal in this kind of mini-series is to give some broad uh, tools, interpretive tools and frameworks within which to think about uh, eschatology, a study of the end times. It's uh, certainly, I think it's floating around more uh, in conversation today than, than usual, just the uptick with everything that's going on in the Middle East, and so uh, want to be... Uh, vigilant and how we think about these things and how these uh, these themes intersect with what's going on in broader culture uh, in terms of what's shaping us as disciples of Jesus. So, uh, Drew, you'll, you'll dive in here in just a moment, but we do want to give a brief PSA. This episode will be releasing here on a mid, little past middle of December, uh, and then we're going to take a holiday break, come back mid to late January uh, with some new topics. So uh, we will keep you apprised of that as that date approaches. But uh, with that, Drew, why don't you uh, take us into today? A couple of recap things of where we've been is um, looking at Matthew 24 and 25 last week and looking at, even though there is ambiguity on what is relevant regarding the events immediately preceding the Lord's return, there's a lot of clarity regarding how we as believers are supposed to live. And I, and I want that to carry over in today's, um, that we are called to live faithful, and that we're called to prepare for a long-term faithfulness. And so it's this concept. If Jesus came through the clouds right now, would he find me faithful? And are my behaviors, is my life today building towards the ability for me to continue to steward what God has given me for the sake of his kingdom, for a generational faithfulness? If he comes back 500, 1,000 years from now, are we building for the future in that way, for that type of faithfulness? And then lastly, a, a central part of this, of what does it mean to be faithful, is our care and concern for the poor. So that is an eschatology based on the latter half of Matthew 24 and Matthew chapter 25. Five explicit teachings on the end times that Jesus gives us, all of them having to do with the posture of the way in which we are supposed to live. 
The flip side of that is Jesus is very clear that we're not going to know when he's going to return, and it's going to be a long time. And so I think that informs even how we how we study and understand the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a lot of the questions, uh, Mick, that I know you've received and I've received uh, regarding eschatology is because of world events and change that people are perceiving over the last many years. And I think this actually predates the events that started in 2020 um, with COVID, but then, um, you know, pretty significant just internal upheaval in every direction. And then in in the last year, uh, more geopolitical with Russia invading Ukraine and Israel and Palestine having um, some some form of war, and and it's too early to know what the um, long-term effect is going to be in the region. Uh, things like that, you know, all of those uh, as people, especially if you're watching the news, you can perceive there's a lot of change going on. You feel it. And so then it's natural to say, like, how does this fit in, in the story of God and, and where does that work for us? Now, here is is my, you know, maybe theme for today. I think Revelation, the book of Revelation is highly relevant for the hour in which we live, but I don't think it's relevant in the way that we think. I think a lot of us are trained to think that Revelation provides a um, very, uh, what's the right word for this, obscure blueprint for the events of the Lord's return, and it's going to be relevant at the end of time. I'm going to argue differently today that I'm not saying it does not have relevance for the end of time, and I'm sure it does, but I think it's actually a a pastoral message to the church of how we're supposed to live in our time, and I think it's important for us. Now, what's tricky, pardon me, what's tricky in, um, in pastoral ministry is it's not easy necessarily to preach. You know, it's like if I'm going to talk to you about what it looks like to live faithful in the midst of cultural pressure, and I pull up the two witnesses in Revelation and the fire coming out of their mouth, like that that doesn't, that makes a challenging sermon. There's a cognitive gap there. It, it, just a lot of explanation that needs to happen. Um, so this is where hopefully today, um, you know, we can maybe close some of that and see just how relevant it is for us. Yeah, and just as a, a reminder, I mentioned this in the first week, but there's an eschatologist got his PhD in the study of the end times named Dr. Mark Sharona, and I heard him speak some years back, and he talked about how he had 5,000 books in his library, 3,000 of which were on the end times, and after reading them all and digging into the text and context at a much deeper level than any, uh, or I'll say the vast majority of us will ever do, he said he only knows one thing for certain as a result of all of his studies, and that is that Jesus is returning. Uh, he said everything else is, in his opinion, there's some degree of conjecture. There's a, a great degree of, of uh, you know, interpretation that goes into it. Um, and he said he has firm opinions about a, ma- a majority of the other issues that come up in a study of the book of Revelation. But I take comfort from that, that if somebody who's dedicated their life to the study of this book can walk away with just one thing with a great degree of certainty uh, in terms of its kind of predictive power, that uh, Jesus will return and, and establish the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, everything else, like you said, Drew, is, is instructive for us, uh, but not necessarily a blueprint for mapping the, um, the ordering of the events and the exact timing of the unfolding of the end times. That's a great reminder, Mick, and that's where we want to go today. Well, let's, let's look at Revelation, and um, like we did last week with Matthew, I always like to think through... Who is the audience of the book? Why is the book being written? What's the surrounding context? And we'll identify here in a minute what are some of the major themes. So this this book is written, and John is very clear on it, to the seven churches. And this is probably the last of, or, or one of the last of the New Testament letters to be written. There's a lot of debate on exactly when that was, but the latter portion of the first century, you know, as early as the 60s, um, in the persecution of Nero, and then I've seen some that take it all the way to the nearly the end of that century. 
It's written by John, and so you can read Revelation, but also bear in mind John's gospel and the three um, epistles that, that are attributed to John. And so it's part of this, this, this broader work that's in the New Testament. And um, you actually, if you read closely, you, you can see some themes, even though they feel very different. You can, you can certainly see the, the themes between all of these different works. Now, it's addressed to the seven churches, but most likely that, that's not just to those seven churches. You know, if you read Paul's letters, they're a bit more precise. These are addressed to seven churches that hit major themes, but I think it's pretty obvious to me it's, it's intended more broadly to the church. And even as you see the seven churches, you see maybe um, thematic echoes or typology even of, of types of churches that, that we find throughout history, and I'm sure were present in his own day. What is prompting the letter? Now, that's a question. Obviously, he's clear. It's a vision. So what's prompting it is, is the Lord gave him a vision. But what, what is he speaking to? I, I think the best illustration I've found is, I mean, what's obvious in the text is there's pressure on believers and on the church. So um, we'll get into how much of that's overt persecution versus other forms of pressure. What I've seen that I think is, is probably right is maybe a more immediate need is the imperial cult. And what that meant is, is at this time, uh, you know, there was, it's maybe a misnomer to say that it definitely wasn't freedom of religion, but it's maybe a misnomer to say there wasn't freedom of religion in Rome. Like it was somewhere in between that. But a lot of it's different than how we would understand it as a modern America. We think of religion as an individualistic thing, you know, where I personally have freedom of religion. Not quite the same, you know, in an idol worshiping culture. There's a lot of civic responsibility that's caught up in it, but there's also what you believe personally is maybe less of a deal, but what you do in public matters. So where this would happen in, in this time in Rome is there had become this imperial cult of people worshiping um, the Roman emperor in some form as a deity. Now you can think of, you know, if you're the Roman emperor and there's a city that has erected a bunch of shrines in your name and is very um, overt in their displays of worship toward you, that you might be giving that city a bit more stuff. You know, you maybe give them a bit more land or money or whatever they're asking for. So there's benefits to being a city that has a strong imperial cult then the citizens of that city would be expected to support that because the good of the city depends on the favor of the emperor, which at least partially depends on their worship of the emperor. So what's at least one contributing factor of what's going on, and I actually think this um, comes into play with the mark of the beast that you find later, is this, this pressure that believers would have felt to join in in the imperial worship, not because it's what they believe, nobody cares about that, but we need you to do this so that our standing can rise as a city and if a sizable portion of our city fails to do this, then that's going to affect everybody else. So the, if 20% refuse to worship Caesar, the other 80% are going to suffer and, well, or maybe not suffer, but they're going to miss on opportunities. They're not going to be happy about that. And so you're probably going to have some type of repercussion for not joining in the imperial cult. That's not the only thing going on, but I, I think that certainly is in the background and would fit historically some of the pressure the church had been feeling. The genre is apocalyptic, and this is probably the most misunderstood um, biblical genre of how to interpret it. The imagery is vivid, and the best way I've had it explained to me is, is like a political cartoon. So if I, and I've used this illustration on this before, but if I told you that donkeys and elephants are going to go to war and it's going to be an epic battle, and you know I could build that, that metaphor out, and if I drew it on a piece of paper, you would actually know what I'm referring to of modern American politics, the Republican and the Democratic Party and, you know, tension that's between them. And so that image is, is very relevant to you, but it's symbolic. Uh, it's a symbolic type of imagery. And so the, this, these images are painting a picture for us. And I think what we can presume is that the, the understanding of this would have been a lot more accessible to the first century believers that heard it. And where we're helped in, in interpreting Revelation is most of that imagery is straight from the Old Testament. 
So this isn't stuff that John is just saying, um, or even even in the way the Lord spoke to John, is in light of what's already found in Scripture. And so you can go through almost chapter by chapter, and this would be my hermeneutical challenge to us in reading Revelation, is make your default assumption, where is this in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. before drawing a conclusion on what else it could mean. So start there. You know, when you're reading the trumpets and the seals, go look at the Egyptian plagues. Go look at um, some of the judgment passages from the prophets, and you're going to see very similar imagery in the Old Testament. And that's actually quite helpful in understanding what's meant in the New Testament. And then I I, I think I'm going to leave the question open of what relevance does it have for the end of time? I don't know. And I'm um, I, I have already said I lean more idealist in understanding books, the book of Revelation or parts of Matthew as descriptive of the church age and amillennial. Um, but I, I, I hold that loosely. Um, I think there's good arguments for a futurist, premillennial perspective, probably less arguments that are um, strong for me, postmillennial. But where, wherever somebody lands on that, I'm, I'm not, those aren't my hills to die on. I, I just like the hermeneutical principle of let the Old Testament interpret um, or at least inform our understanding of, of Revelation. Yeah, and that's a key point in any biblical interpretation. And I just hope if you've tracked with this podcast for any length of time, I hope you've noticed a pattern that when Drew or I start talking about, um, you know, we, we kind of bounce back and forth. We'll talk about cultural issues, philosophical issues. But then when we talk about Scripture, um, we're looking at, uh, especially when we look at a book of the Bible, we're, we're looking at audience, we're looking at intent, we're looking at context, because we want to mine out what was the author intending to say, not just, you know, devotionally, how's, how does this hit me today, how, does, how do I interpret this relative to my life, but <clears throat> it, we'll, we'll get there, but only once we've built a solid interpretive framework for, you know, what, what was the author intending to say. And I think it's safe to say that John presupposed that his audience would have had a deep knowledge of the text, of the Old Testament text, because there's some, I think I read one time, over 220 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation alone. Um, John is presupposing that knowledge that has been baked into them from childhood. And so they, they you know, be like somebody today referencing, this is a, a bad analogy, but like referencing the Marvel Cinematic Universe or um, other cultural kind of intuitive cultural archetypes and symbols that that then have meaning, though these would have a much deeper meaning for the Jews than something like the MCU has for most of us. But uh, but you, that, that analogy stretches insofar as there are creatures and mythical beasts and so on and so forth that have meaning uh, in that context, like the like the book of Daniel chapter 7 and the beasts and the dragon and the, the multiple heads and horns uh, would have been familiar and what that represented in terms of the kingdoms of the earth and so on and so forth. So there were fewer hurdles that they had to jump in, mm-hmm. in interpreting the text than we do. So uh, let's be good students of the text and uh, steep ourselves in not just our favorite passages, but the whole breadth of the, of the counsel of God. Now, I want to take that, and I'm going to switch um, to a different side of the ledger on this. Um, there is, you know, with critical scholarship, which would be very focused on only what John is, you know, his, his cultural moment, the, exactly locating Revelation in its historical context, um, looking at, uh, you know, even edits, you know, potential edits or hypothesized edits or redactions that take place. and earlier material that John's pulling in, if he's quoting somebody else, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's all in the realm of critical scholarship. One thing that I think is important, at least um, for, for me, is I do believe in prophecy. 
And so, you know, where John is claiming that God is speaking to him or leading him in a vision, I believe that God does lead and speak. And that's an important point of departure that, that I would encourage people to, to wrestle with, is if, if we don't believe in prophecy, we would probably interpret Revelation entirely as the historical artifact, even an inspired historical work. But if we believe that God was speaking to John, I think that does open the door that God was speaking to John in different types of symbolism. Now, what taking your point, Mick, and this is where I would land, I, I see it the same way, is that the way that God is speaking to John, or at least how God was inspiring John to relay his vision, was in the framework of Old Testament imagery. So that's actually great. <laughs> you know, that, that simplifies this dramatically for us, is, is the way that it comes out is vivid Old Testament imagery. And, you know, I believe that, there, that it is prophecy. I think God allows prophets to, you know, work their own voice into that, not against the word, but their humanity is included in it. And God is using his word to speak his word. So I think that's a cool, a cool feature. It's a feature, not a bug, um, is another way of saying that. But it helps us to interpret this. So a, a question out the gate is, what is the main message of Revelation? And a lot of biblical scholarship until recently is that it is how a church endures in times of persecution. However, recent scholarship looks at it slightly differently. And if you read the seven letters, there's one instance of a person who's been martyred. And, you know, and it's kind of referenced almost as an exceptional event. Like even, I forget the name, but, you know, even they lost their life and you're in a city where they lost their life. Now, there is reference certainly later in the book of tremendous amounts of martyrs. Um, there is reference um, to the potential for martyrdom in the other seven letters. But it seems that in this situation, it wasn't a systemic persecution of Christians that we know came later. And most of that would have occurred after the book of Revelation was composed. And so instead... What recent scholarship is saying is that it's really a book talking about assimilation. So it's not overt persecution, the secret police are kicking in my door, though I think it's still relevant if that's someone's situation. It's actually the pressure I feel to go along with the systems of the world and to water down my faith. And eventually that, that leads to persecution, and we certainly see that historically where that's been the case. And the reality for many Christians around the world is that social pressure can eventually peak in forms of violence towards the church. But what seems to be the case, and, and maybe even the majority of the recipients of this were not in immediate risk of their lives, though that was a possibility for them more so than it would be for us. However, what they were that they were in very clear risk of is their social standing, um, their, their ability to progress financially, um, whatever else it may be, their reputation in the community, all of these different things are threatened. And so the message is, as a church, when we are up and against pressure, how do we endure and how do we stand strong? And, and most likely what's happening during this time is the persecution's local. So I mentioned the imperial cult. In one city, that could be very intense. You know, if the emperor is coming to town and you refuse to join in the worship, and, you know, that could take the form of overt persecution. But maybe in another city, it's not like that right now. It's just kind of this, you know, ambient pressure to fit in. And you, you recognize if I, if I really go with the Christianity thing at some point, I'm not going to be able to, to go along with the, the normal practices of my culture and things that would just seem very typical, you know, stop by the temple and make a sacrifice or join in or, you know, that kind of stuff. And believers around the world deal with that still to this day. So Revelation is challenging us to be a faithful witness and to not give in to cultural pressure. Mm -hmm. So take that. How hugely relevant is that to us right now, you know, as a society where um, at least the kind of um, committed Christians where we are 
um, not the majority, and our society is becoming increasingly secular, and there is at least some type of social cost, not like they were experiencing in the first century, and not like most believers around the world experience, but still something. Uh, now, all of a sudden, we're, we're faced with that same pressure. And how do we live a faithful life, and are we willing to sacrifice to maintain the witness of our faith? Are we willing to ultimately say no to opportunities and be willing to lose out on those opportunities? And for, for many believers, that has culminated in even physical death. But it's not only for those believers. And I think that's the key point. This is not just a book for somebody when the government you know, takes over everything and outlaws Christianity and tries to round up Christians and put them in concentration camps. That, that's not just the target of Revelation, is a scenario where that type of thing can occur. Um, but I, I think it's for all Christians, how do we not assimilate into the default values of the world? And to connect this to the uh, podcast, uh, the episode from last week, talking about Matthew 25, that it seems that in that apocalyptic literature that Jesus was far more concerned with, again, the posture of our heart, the, the living expectantly, faithfully. And if the key message in the book of Revelation, just going back to Mark Sharona's uh, claim that the only thing he knows for certain is that Jesus is returning, and that fits hand in glove with Jesus' uh, message in Matthew 24 and 25, I am returning. The Master will return. Though it, uh, though it might seem like a long time, will he find faith in the earth? And so would you agree that that becomes kind of the central message in the book of Revelation as well? I do. And I think actually the key message in Revelation is we are going to face trials in this world, and trials not just natural disaster trials, but we'll, we'll face pressure in this world. And we need to remember the ultimate victory of Christ and live in light of his coming kingdom. And so where those parables in Matthew, they're, you know, as you're saying, they're, they're stressing the faithful living and the long-term faithfulness. This is also stressing that uh, a key word in Revelation is testimony, which is martyr. And we'll, we'll hit to that in a second, you know, where um, in Revelation where it says, they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. It's actually the word of their martyrdom, mm-hmm. um, which adds a little punch to that phrase that maybe gets missed in our English translations. And that, that idea, though, of what does it mean to be a faithful witness, even up into the point of being willing to lose your life. So it certainly ties in with Matthew 24 and 25. And, you know, when I, when I think of Revelation, I think most people, if I tell them I'm going to talk on Revelation, immediately they jump to end times. Immediately they jump to, you know, where's the role of the UN or something like that, you know. Um, that, that's where our brains go with it. And once again, it, it certainly can speak to that. So I'm not, I'm not saying there's no relevance, but I also would say that this is maybe one of the New Testament books that's the most specifically speaking to a church not assimilating to surrounding cultural values, which is exactly all of what we talk about. And it's a bummer to me because we, we've so interpreted it through this one prism of you know, a period of tribulation right before the Lord's return. That, that I worry we're missing what is the main message of Revelation that's relevant for us and every other generation up and until the Lord returns. And yeah, I'm sure in the last generation, it'll have a special type of relevance, and I don't want to discount that. But I also want to reclaim it so it's not just for the last generation, but it's for the church in its entirety. So let's, let's look at the book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through and you know, I'm making all these claims about it, but then you're going to read it, and you're going to read some very vivid imagery, and you're going to have a hard time making sense of it. And no matter how much you've studied it, you're going to have to work hard at it. So um, here's my just high-level overview of, of what I see in the book of Revelation. We'll start with the beginning and the end, Revelation 1 through 5. It starts off 
with with um, Jesus at the beginning, and he's the faithful witness, and and he is the faithful martyr. So right from the very get go, in the prayer, we we see this image of Jesus as the example to us of the one who overcame. And then in, in the rest of Revelation one, you see Jesus, and he is this description of you know his eyes are um, burning like the sun, his his legs are, are like. Um, you know, bronze that's in the fire and, and the brilliance and all that. And what I find to be remarkable, if you read um, Daniel chapter 7, there's a description of the Ancient of Days. So this is Adonai, Israel's God, and it's him on his heavenly throne. And then you have a son of man figure come into his presence and receive authority. And that's such a crucial text um, for Revelation in Matthew 24. What's fascinating to me and powerful to me in Revelation 1 is the son of man is Adonai. And so the the brilliant, the shining like the sun, the clothed in white that describes Israel's God is found in the Son of Man, the person of Jesus. So that's a cool just Trinitarian um, revealing him as God. What you also see is that this cry, holy, 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 but it's matched with the one who was and is and is to come. And so God is set apart above and beyond, and that's what holiness means, is, is set apart. So God is he, he does not interact in the plane of all of the human stuff. Like, we don't change God. God is holy from us entire, and his holiness is the past, the present, and the future. So he's the God who has world events in the palm of his hand, and it's, it's his word ultimately that will triumph. So then you get to Revelation 2 and 3. That's the letter of the seven churches and this theme of assimilation, and, and it's that message of faithfulness, you know, and it's where have they or have they not been faithful and I think it's a really powerful to go through that, and it's convicting. And, and I love the compassion of the Lord, of encouragement for what we've done well, but also what you see is that God is after our entire sanctification, um, not just he did a few things well, but he wants all of us. And you see churches that were in different places um, in, in response, but, but you can kind of pick out in that, that there's a vibrancy of their love for the Lord that counts, and then there's ability to stand strong in the face of pressure that counts. Yeah, going back just real quick to that uh, Revelation 1, the the Son of Man, just looking back at Daniel 7, there were a couple of things that were attributed to the to the Son of Man in Daniel 7 that up to that point were only attributable to, to God, the Father, like riding on the clouds and having dominion over all the nations. And that is a really cool Trinitarian meditation, kind of linking those two thoughts together. Yeah, and you'll see even later in Revelation, the Spirit makes an appearance, and at the end of Revelation, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. You know, it's just a cool, you see all this woven in. Revelation 4 and 5 really builds off what you just said, and it, it's almost like we're going back to the scene from um, Daniel chapter 7, and this is, this is a glimpse into heaven. And Revelation 4, I think, has a ton of parallels to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, where you see, um, you see God Almighty, you know, in, in heaven with the, the four living creatures around the throne. Ezekiel 1, um, another very obscure passage that's hard to interpret. Uh, my favorite of the people who think it's describing aliens. But there's, you know, the, the same. But in all of these cases, what you see are the living creatures surrounding the throne of God. So that's, that is Old Testament imagery. The cherubim, um, you know, in, in the temple, they would surround the ark. The ark is the seat, you know, so the ark is almost like the, the cushion of the seat, and then God dwells on the seat and the cherubim surround him. That's what's represented in the temple, but you see the living version of that that is, that is eternal. And the, the living creatures, you know, again, incredible imagery, but um, you look at their faces, an eagle, a man, an ox, a lion. It's, I think the best interpretation of that is it's the strength of creation. You know, these are all metaphors of strength. 
And it's the power and strength of creation giving worship to God. Within that same courtroom scene, you see the 24 elders representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And, uh, you know, God's dealing with humanity. Revelation 4 is more or less Old Testament imagery. There's not much new there. It's just that same scene, and that would have fit right in in, in, you know, some of the other prophetic literature from the Old Testament. But Revelation 5 introduces something radical. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is a thematic element of the book. It's such a cool, such a cool thing where, you know, you're talking about the scroll, which I think represents the unfolding of God's plan or his authority over the earth, and maybe a few different ways you could slice it. But what, what John is told is the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and then immediately he sees a lamb looking as it's been slain. And that's thematic for Revelation. It's this juxtaposition between the power and the authority of God and the suffering of martyrdom. And once again, even in the person of Jesus, or ultimately in the person of Jesus, he is, as we'll see later, the rider on the white horse that conquers in Revelation chapter 19, but he's also the vulnerable child in Revelation chapter 12. He's the lamb that was slain at the same time that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So what is the church that we see in Revelation? It's the army of martyrs. It's the ones who overcame, they conquered through their martyrdom. And that can feel paradoxical. You know, it's, it, it's this, this contrast of what we think victory looks like is strength in a certain way. But what Revelation is telling us, victory looks like our willingness to die because that's the way of Jesus. But in death is resurrection life. And so when I am feeling pressure, when I am suffering, when I am feeling lost, when I am being even overtly persecuted, I'm not losing in those moments if I stay faithful, but that is precisely my victory in the same way that I am following the footsteps of Jesus, that that was his victory. And that the worship that goes up after the lamb who is slain is revealed in this heavenly courtroom is that's the moment where uh, you know, you're worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase men for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. The same language from D Daniel chapter 7. Mm -hmm. We see this unfolding of God's plan. The Son of Man, through his death, purchases the authority over the earth. And now we can see the fulfillment and the unfolding of the scroll of God's plans for humanity. And obviously that's all referring to the work and person of Jesus. Yeah, and that's a, a great meditation in Revelation 5, verses 1 through 6, of when you know, John is weeping because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. Uh, there was there was not yet that new human who would um, undo the curse of Adam and Eve and and obey God perfectly. And you know, the elder steps forth. Or the uh, yeah, I believe it's the elder steps forth and tells John to stop weeping because behold, the the root of David has conquered and has overcome, is worthy to break the seals, and then introduces him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's like when the camera pans over, uh, John sees a lamb as though it had been slain. And just that contrast, the humility of Jesus, even in that courtroom scene, to manifest as, as the sacrificial lamb, even though he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and was announced that way, is a, a beautiful... Um, kind of bringing all those themes into one moment in, in time uh, there in that text. And you see the Spirit, once again, you know, is the sevenfold Spirit of God. The worship that was going up to the Father is now being given to the Lamb. And so, you know, there's all this Trinitarian interweaving that goes into it. And I, I think what you see in Revelation 4 and 5 that, that I believe fits for Revelation as a whole is it's all of human history dramatized in some way. 
So we're, we're not just talking about, you know, this one narrow window of time, but we're seeing the story of God's dealings with humanity played out, and the decisive moment is, is the lamb that was slain. That's when the ultimate victory begins. Before we tackle some of the tricky stuff in the middle, if you jump to the end of Revelation 21 and 22, I think this is also incredibly powerful. So at the end, after the victory of God, what, what we see is the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and it's this massive city. And then um, we, we see all of this Eden language of the river, the tree of life, and you know it's, it's this restored Eden. And to me, the, the greatest difference between the first Eden and the last even Eden is now instead of two people, you see a city of people, and these are the ones who uh, are the, the bride of the Lamb, the ones who've been redeemed, the ones who have been joined into the life of God. And it's this full circle of, of God's dealing with humanity and restoring us back into dwelling with us. And in this new Jerusalem, there's no need for a temple because God dwells with us entirely and inhabits the city entirely, even as its source of life, of light, obviously life as well. And so it, it tells us, you know, this is where the story is ending. And all of Revelation and really all of Scripture is pointing towards that. Like, this is where this is going, is the victory of God, because that is the eternal reality. For an Old Testament parallel, there's a lot of them, obviously Genesis 2, but I, I think another cool one is Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel is telling also in very hard to interpret vivid imagery, the first portion of Ezekiel is all about judgment, and it's the pending judgment on the people of God that culminates in the destruction of the temple. But then he does this hard right turn where once there has been the destruction, it's all about restoration. Mm-hmm. And part of that restoration is he has this famous, this, this vision of dry bones coming to life. He has this, um, this other vision of the enemies of God, you know, culminating in a final battle. And so God is restoring his people to life. God's defeating his enemies. And then what God is doing is restoring the temple. And so Ezekiel, you know, it's, it's a really funny book to read because you get to the end and like the last eight chapters almost read like they're in Leviticus, you know, it's the order of land allotment mm-hmm. and the dimensions of the temple and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but what, what's the message of that? God's restoring his people. He's right. restoring the temple. He's restoring the land. And even in Ezekiel, the river of life flowing out of the altar, and it's this really fascinating image of flowing out of the altar and actually turning the Dead Sea into a sea of life. And once again, a prophetic picture of God's intention. I think John's picking up on that, but it's more cosmic. God, you know, he's redeeming his people. He's giving us life. That's the, the, the lamb that's been slain. He's defeating his enemies. And there's even laments like you find in Ezekiel over um, the nations that have been defeated. And then it culminates in the new city, the new land, the new temple, the river of life, and the restoration of God for his people. Yeah. And, and just one more um, kind of facet of Ezekiel 1, part of what what was blowing Ezekiel's mind was that the glory of God was showing up in Babylon, that the vision that he's having of God was reminiscent of, of what, you know, the depiction of what would, of the glory of God showing up in the temple and a lot of that imagery with wheels and cherubim and all this kind of stuff. But it's happening there at the river Chabar, or Kabar, however you pronounce it, uh, in Babylon, in exile, and that God was not restricted uh, to the physical location of the temple, uh, but was manifesting his glory in the nations um, outside of the boundaries of the of the geographical kind of location of uh, what the Jews were used to in terms of the geographical location and seeing that then show up again here in the in the book of Revelation this theme of God coming in glory to his people not restricted by these kind of temporal or geographic boundaries 
Yeah, and it's what, what's powerful to me is, you know, all of that imagery of God's universal purposes. We're seeing those, like you're saying, Mick, in Ezekiel, and then Revelation is after after the incarnate Christ walked the earth, uh, died, was buried, and rose again, and ascended. Now we see the purposes of God more clearly. It's like the, you know, the, the image in the New Testament of the man whose eyes were healed. You know, his eyes saw, Ezekiel eyes saw, but then Jesus, he brought a, a greater depth of clarity to see God's purposes. But it's the same story. And that's what's so crucial here is it's not a different story. It's the same story being told. Mm-hmm. Revelation 17 through 20, and I, I recognize I'm bouncing around but really, the controversy in Revelation that we got at that's hard is 6 to 16. So I'm just going to kind of bracket 17 through 20. Even though it's amazing, it fits quite neatly, I think, in this tradition in the Old Testament, um, like Ezekiel and the lament for Tyre is a great example, or, or Isaiah does it in other places. Um, it, it's lamenting, you know, these fallen nations, you know, woe to Babylon. And Babylon is very clearly and overtly intended to represent Rome. But I don't think it's just Rome. I think Babylon represents what Rome represented, was commerce, empire, all the things that we put our faith in and live for in this world, the power struggle, struggles to gain wealth, influence, all of that kind of stuff. Like that, that is symbolized in Babylon. That is symbolized in Rome. I'd even go so far back to say it's Babel. And we better believe that's symbolized in our world today. But what does it show? What's the lament show is everybody who put their faith in those things, woe to them. You know, mm-hmm. the merchants of the earth, they've lost everything. They, they put their faith in Babylon, now Babylon has fallen. And right up and against that is the, the victory, the ultimate victory of the martyr church, where, the, you know, Babylon, it's a woe and a lament. It's the rejoicing now of the army of martyrs, who this is their moment of vindication, where ultimately um, Christ is victorious, Revelation 19. He conquers the nations, and it is, you know, we've already mentioned the thousand years. I'm, just, I'm not going to get back into that today. So there is some apocalyptic stuff that's a little harder, but I, I don't know where that's the main challenge mm-hmm. in Revelation is 17 through 20. Yeah, and it's not just that that the people put their trust in and desire for the things of Babylon and Rome, but those empires were built on the backs of people. They were built at the expense of the poor and the marginalized and so on, and that theme comes up over and over and over again in the prophets and in the book of Revelation. Exactly. And, you know, in the prophets, a lot of it um, is the the woes and judgments that are being given are being given to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is being likened to Babylon. I mean, that's shocking. You know, it's it's essentially saying, like, you've become Babylon. And, and here's the consequence of that. Because you've become Babylon, you're going to suffer the fate of Babylon. So when we get to Revelation, it's the same message. Don't become like Babylon, because if you become like Babylon, you suffer the fate of Babylon. And once again, how relevant is that to us today? Like, don't become like the world, because if you do, then you get carried away in the judgment that comes to the world ultimately. But stay faithful in your testimony, and in the end, um, you become those who are victorious. Okay, so let's get into the fun stuff. The other stuff is really fun too, but this is this is where Revelation gets challenging. Starting in chapter six, where you have, it gets challenging. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is where maybe maybe we Takes already a, were challenging. Levels it's up. Like, it's like a ski slope, you yes. know. Like yeah, this yeah. is where you have like the double diamond, then you have the backcountry double diamond yeah, yeah, with yeah. like the picture of the grizzly bear. You know, that's where we are now, right? This okay. is where um, it, it can get a little complex. Within this section, there it is organized around three sets of judgment. There are seals, trumpets, and bowls. And in each one of the judgments, there are seven judgments. So there are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Interspersed with that is uh, these kind of interlude-type 
visions and um, things that occur. And, you know, one of those is the two witnesses in Revelation 11. There's Revelation 12 with the woman and the child and the dragon. Um, there is the, the the beast and then the other beast, and um, they're putting marks on people. It is complicated, you know. And so this is where the intensity of, of the imagery is found, I think, most acutely in 6 through 16, though it's elsewhere in the book. And what I'm going to do is we, we can't go through everything, and, I'm, you know, there's others that are much better at this than I am. But what I am going to do is is give two options for how to interpret it, and then I'm going to show you what it looks like by just doing some high-level stuff, though it's not going to answer every question. Uh, I, I do want to give credit. I have pulled extensively from Sam Storms, who I've referenced before, and so his website, I think it's either samstorms.org or Tom. Um, it's easy to find. And he has like 38 articles that he's written on Revelation. And so um, if you go read all those, you'll notice some similarities with what I'm saying. And I'd, I'd encourage you, if you're listening to all this and you know you have all these questions suddenly, and they're, they're pastoral, they're not academic. He's academic. I mean, he was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society at one point. But, um, but th- these are intended to be read by the church, but they're also you know intellectually like you can see some of these moves. So if you want to dig deeper, that's a great starting point. You don't even have to read a book. So the seals, um, the, the seven seals, that's Revelation chapter seven. And the first four are horsemen. And you've got a white horse, you've got a black horse, a red horse, a pale horse. What I'm doing, and I want to model is, um, first of all, how do you interpret all of this? And then how does the Old Testament inform the new? So you got the seals. And here, here's the challenge. And I think the first thing we have to decide is, is the judgment these four seals, the seven trumpets, or the, all seven seals, really, the trumpets, the bowls, is this a progression that's happening kind of in rapid succession? Or is this recapitulation where the same story is being told over and over and over again? Sam Storms and myself and, and others would argue that this is best understood as recapitulation. So what we're not looking at is seven seals that are going to happen in chronological order followed by seven trumpets that will happen in chronological order, followed by seven bulls that will happen in chronological order. Instead, what you're looking at is the same theme of judgment that's taking place. And I would say this is similar to what we talked about with Matthew chapter 4, the wars, rumors of war. These are the types of trials and judgments that occur during the age of the church. However, the caveat I will say is there is an increasing intensity between the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. I think that there's a fair argument to be made that as time goes on, the intensity of these judgments increases and potentially even culminates in what's you know maybe more typical of how we would understand kind of that last generation. So I, I'm not precluding that as an option, but I'm also trying to back off of, um, I, I've seen people with these very precise end times charts. So it's like, you know, you're in the end times when you see this or that, or, um, you know, it, it's going to be... Um, you know, even taking like the locusts <laughs> and the scorpions or <laughs> something and how that ties into an army that's going to come or whatever. Um, I, I just think that's where that's where that can get get off, I think. So instead, I would look at this as these are cycles of divine judgment that occur in the earth in an ongoing way, not just the end of time, but perhaps that culminate in their intensity at the end of time. That would be how I would how I would read these. Now, I, to be fair, I think you could read it as a progression, and I'm not going to accuse that as a misreading. Um, I think that's a different type of interpretation, and um, there's, there's other people out there that would argue for that, and, and well-respected people. So fair enough. Um, I'm just giving, giving my own perspective. The key point here, though, that I want to make is however you interpret these 10, 10 chapters, 
I do not believe changes the fundamental message of Revelation. And so even if you disagree with my interpretation of these, that's fine. I think you can still agree to what's the main message of the book of what does it mean to be a faithful church. And I believe that's a relevant message to us today. And that's where I always want to land with this is let's not get so hung up on the complicated stuff that we miss the obvious. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to go with, I'll, I'll just go rapidly through this. First of all, the four horsemen, Zechariah 6, 1 through 8, Ezekiel 14, 12 through 23, all of these reference something similar. And in each case, it's referring to divine judgment. So this is not the first time we've seen horsemen. And in each instance, it's referring to God's judgment that is unleashed upon the earth. I think that's very similar to Matthew 24. We get into, um, you know, kind of this, this martyr church, you know, and, it, and you have the 144,000. And as you read that, what you notice, it kind of comes out of the four horsemen, gets into that. that and, and as you read it, you notice that it reads very similar to the, the battle order of ancient Israel. I think what's being presented to us is this is the army of God, but it's an army of martyrs. And so it's a different way of understanding it. And that immediately changes Revelation chapter 7, 9. Then you see it's every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. I see parallels with Matthew, um, even you know the gospel of the kingdom being preached. But it is this concept of as the seals, as the four horsemen, as the trials, the wars, the rumors of the wars, all this stuff is occurring in the earth. Simultaneously, you have the people of God who are an army of martyrs who conquer not through force of arms or power, but through their faithful witness, and it culminates in every single tribe, tongue, and language and nation worshiping before the throne. Then you get to some of the fun, crazy stuff, like the mountains being thrown into the sea and falling down, like, you know, um, uh, so Revelation 6, 14. Um, See the parallels with Isaiah 5, 25, um, if you want to look that up, or even Revelation 16, 20. It's actually the same thing, you know, um, of these mountains melting in the sky. And that's where you get into this whole thing of recapitulation. If you take all of these as a linear progression, you actually have um, some logical problems. You know, Well, if all the mountains collapsed in six, how do they do it again in 16? And, um, but, if you, but if you view this as recapitulation with apocalyptic imagery, you know, typically when you see mountains falling and collapsing and shaking, what that's referring to is God shaking the earth. So massive geopolitical change a lot of times a mountain collapsing is a kingdom falling, you know, and it's representative of that. And that's similar to the stars falling out of the sky. So you can kind of think of it. It's like my world just got shaken. Everything I knew is not there anymore. And so this imagery of the stars falling, the mountains shaking, what that's describing is even the things that we thought were strong have been shaken and torn down. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best interpre- interpretation of that language. They're these kind of fixed points. Yeah, they're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Then you get into the trumpets and... Uh, you know, I, I think you can see parallels. Um, the the rivers turning into blood, you know, is a clear parallel. I think to uh, the judgments in um, in Pharaoh and the Nile. Um, once again, the mountain in the heart of the sea. That Psalm, you know, forty six two as an example. But that imagery is found throughout the um, the Old Testament. The third trumpet talks about wormwood, which is always I always love reading like end <laughs> time stuff. What people mm-hmm. do with that one, you know, it's like a meteor that's going to come pollute the the water supply. But actually, Jeremiah 9.15 talks about um, because of our sin, our water is bitter, using the same word. Um, so it's kind of a penalty for rejecting God. The darkened sky, once again, the Egyptian plague. Um, something I, I came across that I think is kind of cool is in the trumpets, and you see this elsewhere, all of the things that came with creation are dying off. Light, fish, and it kind of goes through systematically the things that were given in creation are, are now dying. And so I think there's a theme here that's, that is decreation. Because of our mm-hmm. sin... 
um, and, and God's judgment on the earth, what was created is being decreated, but it's ultimately pointing towards recreation that comes with Christ. Um, you know, lo- the locust and scorpions um, and, and kind of this crazy, you know, t- there's like this very long passage about exactly what they're going to look like, <laughs> you know, the, the face of horses and all this other crazy stuff. But um, Joel 2 has a very similar passage, and it's an army of locusts that are going to come in. And once again, it's, it's God's judgment on the earth, um, Exodus 10, you know. And, and within all that, it, I, I think in John, it's a metaphor for the demonic. So it's not just literally de- locust, but it's um, demonic forces are on the earth, you know, because of our sin, and it's it is tormenting us. But the trumpets culminate with the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God, which I think is really is really cool. Um, you know, you get into Revelation eleven, and it's the what do you do with the three and a half years and the time, time, time and a half, and all of that. Um, I, I think that is Old Testament imagery for a time of distress. So, however else you want to make it, um, I think that's the best interpretation. Um, you know, the witnesses, it, it kind of goes on all, all down the line. So I, I'm using all that to just give some starter points for anybody who wants to dive into this more of um, how do you interpret all of it? Now, I don't know, maybe at the end of time, each one of these has a very clear par- parallel in a very real world event that's going to happen. I, it very well could be the case. That's, that's what occurs. But I think there are other ways, and this is why I took the last couple of minutes to go through it. There are other ways of interpreting this that aren't just mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And and, and I say that because I, I don't want this to be that you, you know, you read Revelation just for those 10 chapters as an end times blueprint. I, I think instead, maybe, um, I think also it can reference God's judgment on the earth. Um, and that helps us to, to interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the, uh, the big theme here, and to, to maybe bring this down to a pastoral lived reality level, is that Jesus wins in the end. That the the theme of scripture is that through death comes life, through the you know the belly of the whale comes a rebirth, through the the tomb comes the resurrection from the dead, and and uh, so you know again we look around at the events that are going on in our day, and it's easy to get overwhelmed and to feel like we're out of control, we're so vulnerable, we're so fragile, uh, but the 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 message of hope that's embedded in the book of Revelation is the overcoming power of the suffering servant, the one who uh, is the author of life and uh, and brings about life from from the ultimate enemy, death. And here's where, and we'll wrap with this. I started, I think Revelation's highly relevant. And so the common premillennial interpretation, maybe, you know, maybe that's relevant for whenever that occurs. But relevant for us today, absolutely relevant. Um, and I think it speaks right to a lot of our issues. So what are some of the themes? The world is marked by trials. And that's what I think all that crazy imagery of seals and trumpets and um, bulls, it, it's trials, you know, and it's wars, it's rumors of wars, it's the horsemen, it's political instability, it's natural disasters. And, and these are features of human existence. And, and so in a way, I could look at any century and I'm going to find those things. And when I look around the world, I find those things and they affect us deeply. And so, you know, does the shock of COVID and technology change and, um, you know, maybe a a change in the international order where the Pax Americana as, you know, the world's primary superpower is declining and potentially being matched by China and others and all these other, you know, add all of it up, political instability in our own nation, all of those things, I, I read that and to me, that feels like, you know, they're real, they affect us, they shake us, it's the mountain collapsing or, or maybe cracking is how we feel. On the one hand, I don't know that that necessarily has one, anything one way or the other as far as the end of time. I don't, 
I don't think that type of stuff is what drives that. And when I read Matthew 20, 24, you know, in one of those parables, it's like, we're just living life like normal and suddenly Jesus comes back. So I, I don't know that th those things are, are what would herald the end of time. But I do know that they're very real and they affect us. So how as Christians do we interpret those things? Mm -hmm. The message of Revelation is we don't put our hope in this world. We expect those things to occur in this world. And we put our hope in the coming kingdom of God and his hand in history. Uh, the world, second point, the world is marked by pressure to assimilate. I mean, the, the letters, all seven of the churches is so relevant to the church today. And, and we feel the same thing, different pressure points, but the same thing. And I think that's so much behind our podcast is... Even more than the geopolitical events, we can feel the changing religious landscape, and we don't know what to do with it. And there's kind of a tipping point that's probably occurred in the last 10 years with all of this. I don't think our greatest danger is overt persecution. I don't. I, that's it could happen, and I think a lot of people think of the end times, and they're like, okay, we got to prepare the church for having to meet, you know, in basements. And, and again, that will be rea reality for believers. It is reality for believers around the world today. It very well could be reality in the West at some point in the future. I don't want to minimize that that's an option. However, um, historically, when that's happened to the church, we tend to rise to the occasion, like the church in China or church in Iran has done. I am worried about a more insidious threat, which I think is the pressure to assimilate. And, and what if our great tribulation is not overt persecution and secret police, but it's we lose access to social standing and certain forms of wealth? And, and if we look at it through that prism, it's already kind of happening in certain in certain places. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to advance in, in the academy and you want to maintain a charismatic evangelical belief system and be not even outspoken, but just be clear on that, you're going to have problems, mm -hmm. you know? And it's not total. I mean, it, I, I don't want to paint too bleak a picture, but that's very real. And I don't know that the church is equipped for that. I, I think a lot of us are used to not having any kind of problem with our faith in the public square. And I don't know that we know how to deal with the assimilation challenge that will occur. Yeah, and this comes directly out of Revelation 18, verse 4. Uh, he says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Speaking of Babylon in that, in that context. Uh, but that's almost a verbatim quote from Second Corinthians 6, I believe it is. Uh, but just calling us out from the ways and the systems of the world to live and to manifest a different kingdom. And I think that's one where what what's the, the greatest threat? Are we preparing the church to have to go underground? And I'm not saying that's not that will happen somewhere in the world, you know. So that that's that there is something to that, and it could happen. Or I, I think the flip side though, and this is what I don't hear talked about enough, is are we preparing the Western church to live in an environment where there's going to be a stigma and a social cost to their faith? Are we prepared to be faithful in that environment? Because whatever happens with overt persecution and whether it ever comes or doesn't or how intense it comes, the, 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 the social stigma is a reality that is coming, and I don't know that we're prepared. So in that sense, Revelation is entirely relevant to us, even if that message doesn't involve the end of time. So the message of Revelation in the end, the king is coming back. Jesus wins. And how do we combat the pressure to assimilate is we have a greater awareness of God's purposes and the coming kingdom. And it's the martyr church that overcomes. So we don't overcome, and I think this is another important thing for the posture of the church. It's not us seizing power back. It's not us accumulating a greater degree of wealth and power. And that's why you know, we're facing pressures because we just weren't strong enough. But it's instead, it's our martyrdom witness. And I, and I'm not, I don't want to use that too strongly. I, I, please use your wealth and power in service of the kingdom. However God has given you that, um, steward it wisely. But 
the, the message of Revelation is not, is not that. It's not a rebuke because you weren't powerful enough. Instead, it's, are you willing to be a martyr? And that word witness, um, testimony, you know, it's all the root word of that in Greek is martyrdom. And, you know, I, I think in one level, um, in periods of, of overt persecution, um, it's literal. You know, people die for their faith. However, there's a living martyrdom that's, that's willing to be disadvantaged for your faith that I think is equally difficult. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's where we'll wrap today is, you know, what's the conclusion? Don't assimilate into the things of the world. Mm-hmm. So is Revelation relevant? Yes. And it's telling us live in light of the king and the kingdom. Live faithful. Prepare for a long faithfulness. And the great news is whether we're, you know, in the last generation or whether we have a thousand more to go, if we live that way, we're living in, in the right side of the story, and we know that our, our ultimate victory is secure in Christ. So good, Drew. Thanks for prepping the uh, thoughts today, and thank you, as always, for your listenership. Hopefully, these have been helpful thoughts on a study of the end times. And again, we will take a break here and come back mid to late January with a fresh round of content. Thanks for tuning in, and we will catch you next time on Ideology. Ideology.